Sam Young, welcome to Mormon Discussion. How are you today? I'm doing terrific, Bill. Awesome. Grateful for this chance to to have you on the program. So, Sam, I want to start off. I'm glad to have you on. And obviously, there's all this stuff going on in Mormonism. There was House Bill 330 that was uh, suggested by, and I'll, and I'll share a little tidbit when we get to that point, but suggested by the church. This is actually originated with the church. It's something I'm, I'm fairly certain of. And was suggested to the Chamber of Commerce as they being the entity to push it across, where they tried to make Utah from a one-party state in terms of audio recordings to a two-party state. And there's all this stuff with with you reaching out uh, publicly and trying to encourage the church to recognize some of its unhealthiness in in boundaries and in appropriate and inappropriateness in interviews. And I just think it's so important what you're doing. I I want to start though before we jump into some of these issues. I want to start with you just sharing maybe a little bit about your story. Uh, maybe take a few minutes and just tell us like your Mormon background and and. And then we can kind of jump into this issue and why it became important to you. Okay, my Mormon background. Well, I've got a typical born in the church, active all my life um, background. Uh, Raised in Utah, um, baptized at eight, uh, went through all the Aaronic priesthood stuff, Eagle Scout, uh, served a mission to Guatemala and El Salvador, went to BYU. when I moved to Texas uh, for a job after, hey, hey, here's something. I accomplished the impossible, Bill. During my time at BYU, I did something that very few people did back then. I graduated single from BYU. Uh, anyway, that, that's uh, I graduated from BYU single, moved to uh, Houston, met my wife, uh, married in the temple, served in about every calling you can think of, uh, um, except in the state presidency, served as a bishop um, for five years, and got also was given a lot of really interesting assignments. Uh, several times uh, I was called in by the state presidency, and they would describe what they'd been trying to do for a few years and hadn't been able to get it to work, and they'd ask me to go do a special assignment, which was a lot of fun uh, to do. Uh, my current assignment is to help a Baptist church. Uh, there's a little Baptist church in our neighborhood, in our stake, that uh, is historic. It was founded in 1869. They were victims of arson. As the neighborhoods have built up around this uh, little church, it's um, kind of struggled, especially after the arson. It's a uh, historic uh, black Baptist church. They were down to uh, 11 members when uh, I was called by my state president and bishop to start going there, not stop going to ours, but go to theirs and ours and uh, just look for ways to help, not to proselyte at all. And we've developed a great relationship. They've been involved in a lot of the activities of, at our church and we've been involved in their church and so anyway, there's a little bit of my history. Awesome. In church. Awesome. Love that. And I love the that that kind of a service calling which I think speaks to the ways in which Mormonism in our day is just beginning to kind of open up to to having these kinds of relationships with churches outside of our faith without the at least the obvious intent of trying to to get converts and get baptisms. 
Um, I want to talk, though, and thank you for sharing all that. It gives us kind of a, a glimpse into you and your Mormonism. Um, I want to talk for a moment, this issue of children's interviews, which is the reason you and I are sitting down and having this conversation today. It it wasn't, I mean, it was on my radar, Sam, but it wasn't something that was taking up a lot of space in my mind as I as I just figured, like, yeah, it's it's not really that great, but... Someday we'll fix it. And and you've really brought, I think, attention and shined a light on this, that how unhealthy this is. And I want to give you just a moment to tell us, like, why this, this issue? Why did this issue become important to you? Why was this issue so, um, so important inside your mind that you made this thing something that you were going to uh, fight for and, and work to make as a healthier aspect within our faith? Well, I'm going to go back a little farther than I have with anybody else that I've talked about this with. Um, so I experienced a faith transition that started about three and a half years ago. And a year into it, I'm, I'm looking at, um, there is one thing that our church has you don't find anyplace else, that's, which is the temple and the ceilings and being together with your family forever. And so, so I'd gone through all the other stuff that you traditionally look at when you're going through a faith transition. And it was a painful and lonely transition. Really, that gut-wrenching um, thing as you're finding stuff out. But um, I finally got to the one thing left is the temple. Nobody else has got that. And as I thought about it, the uh, – so I'd never – you know, we go to the temple, but we don't usually – um, think about our covenants every day to make decisions. Um, we're told to obey your temple covenants, but we don't really talk about them. Uh, and so I started thinking about the temple and what it meant, and I came to the conclusion that the, what happens in the temple is empty if you don't have the covenants. If you take the covenants away, then the temple is a, a ceremony without the real meat of the, the covenants. So I started looking at the covenants and started to have questions about what the covenants are. When, when you look at them, you can come up with a whole bunch. I did came up with a whole bunch of questions in my mind. What does this mean? What does this mean? And uh, so I asked um, in my high priest quorum uh, one Sunday, asked, could we schedule a time to talk about our temple covenants? And I was met with, we can't talk about our temple covenants outside of the temple. Well, I'd never heard of that before. That, talking about somebody that's been totally immersed in Mormonism, and yet I'd never heard, you can't talk about your temple covenants outside the temple. But pretty much everybody agreed. At the end of that discussion, I asked, can't we even, so does that, I'm thinking in my head, this is ridiculous. Uh, what about the law of chastity? So I asked the question, can't we even talk about the law of chastity that we make in the temple? You know what the answer was? It was no. And I just thought that's that makes no sense that we can't take talk about any covenant, even the law of chastity that's one sentence long. Uh, well, a couple weeks later, the um, well, <clears throat> after that, I started talking with people individually and asking them um, questions about the. Uh, temple covenants, and nobody had one single answer to it. And and I would ask about the law of chastity. It seems like the law of chastity in the temple is a doesn't include as much stuff as we tell our kids. 
<laughs> they have to obey for the law of chastity. Uh, there's nothing in there about your thoughts. There's nothing in there about masturbation. And uh, so I resolved that this, so then a lesson came up on the law of chastity. I resolved, I'm going to bring that up right off the bat is, is, is um, masturbation a violation of our temple covenants? If you're a married man in the temple, is it a violation of our temple covenants? So I threw that question out right at the beginning of that lesson, and we had a fascinating discussion, Bill. The consensus was, no, it's not a sin for somebody married in the temple. I was stunned. I thought it was a sin all my life. But here we are, and not everybody agreed with that, but it was the consensus that came up with that. Uh, I later on talked to my state president and bishop. They were both in the same room. When we, I brought that up, neither one of them said it was a sin. The state president said, um, I don't get involved in whatever happens behind the bedroom door of a married couple. Um, so that's really when I started thinking about it. It's not a sin. First of all, this would be a stunning, uh, this would stun many members of the church that there are members of the church that don't think it's a sin, um, that a high priest group would come up with that. But that's really when I started thinking about it. Well, now, if it's not a sin for us, is it a sin for the kids? And then I started hearing about some kids that were, couldn't, were held back on going on their mission because masturbation was a problem so I was thinking about it and that would go back probably two and a half years when I had that conversation uh, and but it, my wheels hadn't really engaged in my head until a year ago uh, a friend of mine that I'd home taught for years um, said Sam I think it's time that I tell you why I quit going to church and uh, so he sat down on his patio and he recounted the story of his son uh, one day telling him, Dad, I've got a meeting with the bishop. I'm really nervous about that. The dad said, don't worry, I'll just be out on the couch. And if there's any problem, you just open the door and come out and talk to me. Well, a few minutes later, his son runs out white as a ghost and says, Dad, the bishop asked me if I masturbate and if I have sex with other boys. My friend stood up, walked in the bishop's office, and said, if you ever ask my child a question like that again, I'll beat you to a pulp. He quit going to church uh, over what was asked to his child. Now, <clears throat> that got me thinking a lot. And how common is this? I was a kid. I grew up in the church. I was never asked those questions. As a bishop, I never asked those questions. I didn't look at a kid and say, hey, I, just, just so I can know, do you masturbate? Um, I never, that wasn't a question that I ever thought to ask. So I put it out on, on, on the social networks that I had participated in and asked that question. Um, is this, does this ever happen to you guys? Oh my goodness, Bill, tons of people start sending me, uh, re re replying with um, their stories of their bishop interviews. So more and more stories are coming out, um, and so that was in March of last year. June of this year, or last year, uh, I had one of my daughters, 26-year-old daughter, living with me, and I asked her if she was ever asked this question, and she said, yes, when I was 12, 
the bishop met with me and he asked me if I masturbated. I didn't know what that meant. I asked my friends. They didn't know what it meant. So I went to the Internet, Dad, and I found out what masturbation was, how to do it, and I found pornography. Now, as a dad, I'm kind of getting upset at what happened, thinking about my friend who stood up for his son the minute that happened. I, as a dad, was clueless. I was, I think I was a good dad, but man, I was not close enough. My daughter, one, even though she was, I knew she was being interviewed, but I wasn't there. I was never asked about it, never told about it. And my daughter didn't have the confidence in us to ask what masturbation was. And I can get that. What kid wants to, you know, that's an uncomfortable thing. So I asked her, did it ever happen to you again? And she said, yes, all the time, the entire time I was a young woman in, uh, in, in the young women's program. That, now, my wheels were fully engaged. I'd been hearing it happened to lots of other people, and now it was my child that was taken behind a closed door. That little girl, all by herself, with an older man, with a total big power imbalance, asking her explicit, an explicit sexual question. Uh, <clears throat> that really set me on the road of starting to write about this on my blog, now, as I did that, more and more people started to come out and tell me worse stories um, of questions they had asked and the horrible consequences of this. Um, to talk about your bishop interviews about really about sexual things, most people are embarrassed to talk about that. But after a while, um, if somebody sees it is safe to talk about this someplace, more and more stuff comes out. So that's really how it, it, it started there, Bill. Gotcha, gotcha. So I know the church claims, it, it did this in the recent LDS Newsroom article, and I, and I know it's done it, I think, one other place as well, but the church claims that nobody's better. Nobody's better in the way that they handle their policies and procedures around the abuse of children. But I think you hit on something really important, which is that, there are there are certain ethical boundaries when an adult talks to a child, especially when that child is not related to that adult. Um, it's one thing for a parent. It's another thing for uh, an uncle or a grandfather. It's another thing for a complete stranger. And all of these boundaries we have in our society, like we gauge as time goes on, we gauge like where can we improve and and where are we unhealthy and what's a healthier way to establish these kinds of boundaries in our interactions and our relationships. And it feels as though Mormonism has this really deep blind spot where it's unable to kind of recognize that a grown man sitting down with a 12-year-old boy or 12-year-old girl behind closed doors, and as you pointed, the very deeply unequal power in that relationship, that there really is an unhealthy boundary and it doesn't mean that abuse happens, but it means that we've created a space in our faith, an unnecessary space where abuse can happen and shouldn't. And and I just want to get maybe an idea from you on what do you think in terms of those boundaries, if you've got any thoughts there, but, but specifically, where can we change? Like if you said like, look, the church came to me and they asked me what we could do better. Not that they've ever done that, not that they ever will, but if they came to Sam Young and said, 
what would we what should we do? How should we change this? What is it about Mormonism and its interview process that you see as the right way to adjust or change um, that would that would solve this issue? Well, it's real simple. Just two things. Number one, no one-on-one interviews. No um, behind-closed-doors interviews with an adult and a child. Our entire society has moved past that. Our entire society recognized that as super dangerous and harmful. So there is not another um, reputable organiza- uh, um, church organization in the country that takes children behind closed doors all alone. So number one, we don't do that anymore. You know, the Catholics had this big scandal. They've made changes in their um, uh, policies and their procedures for one-on-one interviews. But <clears throat> I challenge anybody that has any questions about how our society views one-on-one interviews, ask anybody. You describe our process. Before you even get to the sexual questions, um, how would you feel if the pastor of your congregation took your child behind a closed door all alone? Immediately it is, no, no way. No, you, we don't do that. Uh, and that's before you get to the sex. Um, so that's number one, no one-on-one interviews with children. Maybe adults, but not children. Number two is we've got to eliminate the sexual questions completely. Uh, the explicit sexual questions, as soon as you ask a question, you are almost always, well, I, I can't say that almost always, you, you run the gigantic risk of putting shame on that child, whether or not they are engaging in that activity. This child's mind is not an adult mind. Just asking the question can cause that child to feel shame and attach shame to sexuality, which is a big problem. So those are the two things, no sex questions, and make it a one on, uh, no one-on-one interviews. The parents should be in those meetings. They should be uplifting meetings. You know, you hear about a lot of great <clears throat> experiences with bishops. I had good experiences with my bishops. Um, <clears throat> it should be an uplifting experience to the child as opposed to the child walking out of there and feeling icky and dirty from what's been discussed and never wanting to see that bishop again. Yeah. So if the church... So the the question that's in there, and and I get, like, there's this debate, and I want to get into this in a moment, talking about how trained our lay leadership is, because I served as a bishop too, Sam, and so I think the two of us can have that conversation and and speak with some level of authority on what the paradigm is like at the local level. But there's some debate about whether the church has strongly enough told its leadership, its local leadership, that they are to not stray away from the specific questions. So let's just assume for a moment that all local leaders understand definitively that they are to ask the questions that are written in the text of the handbook and not to stray away from that. Is the question itself of, do you live the law of chastity, is that something in your own mind that you feel is acceptable, or does even that question... um, maybe run outside of that healthy boundary? Well, if the church came came out and said, no one-on-one interviews, we the only question with regard to sex is, do you live the law of chastity? And regardless of the answer, yes or no, nothing else will be asked. I think that would be a wonderful step in the right direction. 
personally, I don't think we should even ask that question. Uh, because again, you get into that can shame the child. If the child asks, well, what does that mean? Well, where do you go with that? Uh, is it masturbation or not masturbation? Is it kissing a boy? Is it, you know, you, is it necking? Is it petting? The words that are used in the, uh, for the strength of youth manual. Is it next to murder as it states in the, uh, for the strength of youth thing, which is a super dangerous teaching. We got to get rid of that 100%. That page needs to be torn out of the, uh, uh, for strength of youth manual. But anyway, I, if I was to do it again, I would take complete responsibility for the development of my child in every area, including sexuality. So if the bishop, for some reason, felt like he needs to ask the question, um, do you live the law of chastity? I would tell him, first of all, all meetings, I'm going to be in there with the child. I want these meetings to be wonderful meetings. I want to support my child developing a relationship with Jesus Christ along with the leader of my congregation. But if he has to know, ask that question, I want to um sit down with a bishop personally, or my wife and I sit down with him personally and answer that question for my child. Does your child live the law of chastity? And I would give a yes or no, and I'm not going to go into the no part of it, but I'm going to handle that for my child. Just I do everything else. Jeez, if they go to girls camp, I got to sign a certificate saying you've got my permission to go to girls camp. Uh, For something that can affect my daughter's um, psyche with shame and with um, potential damage to her um, enjoyment of that important part of our um, lives. Um, I, I'm not going to risk that. I, I, I'm going to. Anyway, so that's the way I personally would handle it. Yeah, I I find it interesting that this church, the Church of Jesus Christ Latter Day Saints, Mormonism, Latter Day Saint tradition puts in words in its For Strength of Youth pamphlet and in other places where they talk about sexuality almost in a way that whoever wrote the manual was extremely uncomfortable having those discussions to the point where we use words that most kids don't even understand what they mean, which means that the kid now has to begin to wonder, what does that word mean? And and so you're you're engaging this kid in asking and having to have a conversation around something it just seems like to just a number one step that the church could take is in its manuals, like be specific with words that the kids are going to understand. And that way, these kids, when they go into these interviews, if the church were to, to strongly suggest that we do not ask any questions of sexuality outside of the sentence of, do you live the law of chastity, that these kids would already know enough about what how the church interprets that words rather than using words that are ambiguous to them, that now leaves them this space to wonder if some other little thing in their life is breaking it when it isn't. Does that make sense? Absolutely, yes. That's why when you ask, if you ask a child, do you live the law of chastity, and only yes or no, well, then the child, we don't know what the child is thinking. What is associated with that? Are they going to, you know, these stories... Well, we haven't talked about that yet, but the uh, numerous times people tell their stories and they thought they were horrible for doing something. You're looking at, wait a minute. They kissed. It was a little kiss. There was no 
touching. <laughs> it was a kiss. Yet the child at 12 years old didn't understand um, that that they associated they were not living the law of chastity from that. Right. I, I didn't understand the word petting. In the, I, mean, I joined the church at 17, and I didn't understand what they meant by the word petting until I was like in my late 20s. Like it, nobody knows what that word means. And when you leave a word out there that, that is so ambiguous to, to most of the population, I, I think you're already stepping off into um, – you're already making a, a bad step where things are not clarified and people – things are left in the air and nobody knows what anything means. And so with everything being ambiguous, people begin when they're asked a question to wonder if they're doing something wrong or not. Um, the other thing I want to talk about, and this is where I want to hit on why the boundaries of these one-on-one -on -one interviews are deeply, to me, dangerous and at the very least unhealthy and distorted. But there's several factors. One is that you have a lay ministry. It's one thing – in my mind, again, I'm not saying it's healthy, but if you take a trained pastor who's gone to school to be a minister and you take a Mormon bishop, at the very least that lay or that trained pastor who's gone to school to get his, his degree has had some training in ethics, he's had some training in boundaries, he's had some training in what's appropriate and what's not appropriate. That that bishop who, you know, is a farmer from Kaysville. Um, hasn't had that training. He is walking into this calling without any ability um, given to him by others, tools and resources given to him by others to help him understand what are healthy boundaries and what are healthy ethics when you sit down with somebody. And yet you and I would recognize like even that pastor sitting down with a kid behind closed doors isn't healthy. How much unhealthier is Mormonism with it being a lay leader who who has no training, unless he just happens to be called from a job where he's gotten that. There's no training from the church. The other thing is we say like, no, these guys get training. And, and when I get done going through four or five of these things, I'd love for you to come back and hit on this idea too, because as, again, you served as a bishop. But I served as a bishop and whatever they called training wasn't, was nothing near real training. Like sitting down with a stake president and other bishops in the stake and having a conversation about how to get home teaching numbers up and all the other things that we would go over, there was re no real training at all on ethics, boundaries, what's appropriate, what's not, what are we trying to get at with these questions, what should you not ask, what should you ask, where do you stop? None of that was covered. Um, the other thing too is that some people will point out, you'll get apologists and other people who want to defend the church on this, and they will say, look, people sit down with kids all the time one-on-one. -on -one. Take a psychologist, take a doctor, take a, a dentist. or what." And again, I want to stop that person in their tracks because these are professional people who have gone to, uh, gone to school, gone to college to get training on how to handle these situations. And it is us as parents and as the individual going to the doctor seeking their help, it's not the doctor calling me out of the phone book and asking me to come in and sit down with him and he wants to have a conversation one-on-one -on -one with me. There's such a difference. It's not apples to apples. Another two things that tie in hand-to-hand, -hand, and I know I'm, I'm rambling here, uh, Sam, but there's two other things, which is one, this bishop is trying to establish worthiness. And we leave it kind of up in the air exactly what that means. And each bishop... Each bishop is going to understand that idea differently, 
And some of them are going to feel the need based on what they perceive, how they interpret experiences and information, exactly what they're trying to get at with each person they sit down. And then lastly, there's the dynamic that this lay, untrained leader thinks he speaks for God. Now, whether he does or not, he thinks he does. And so if a thought comes into his mind to ask something, regardless of how inappropriate that is, it might be overridden by the feeling that God has put that question into his head, and hence he will proceed to ask that question, even if deep down in his gut, his gut tells him that question is inappropriate. And so for me, those five things make this these situations exponentially more dangerous than a trained um, professional behind closed doors with a young person. Uh, I just want to get your thoughts on those. Well, I agree with that 100%. Now, they're behind closed doors with professionals. That also has changed in a big way. So I was uh, with a fellow um, that's a urologist a couple of days ago. And he said, look, I always have somebody in the room. There's always going to be a nurse or somebody else in that room. There's no way I'm going to put myself in in uh, um, jeopardy of some kind of accusation. So he says we, we always have that. And I, I, I don't know the ins and outs of the professions uh, like doctor or psychologist or whatnot. Um, but I just know there have been changes there. There's the urologist that uh, insists he's always going to have a, it's just it's just the um, the practice today. They, they, they've come to the point that they don't want to. They, they recognize the danger for them and for the child of having that doing things alone. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I, as you pointed out, I think just as a society, we're coming to the realization that just because this is the way we've always done things doesn't make it healthy or appropriate or that we should allow it to continue that way. Um, I, I, I'm thinking about whether I want to hit on something right now or in a moment, but let's, let's move on. And I want to come back to this kind of make another point here later. Um, what do you think are the barriers to that change? Because Mormonism is resisting your constructive criticism and and you've already offered like there's these two things that we could just do right away. I, I want to get your thoughts on like what do you see as the barriers to this change within Mormonism? Well, I don't even know if the church itself, if the so ultimately the decisions for the entire church are made by the apostles and the first presidency. I have no idea if they're even aware of what's going on. <clears throat> Although I think there's a lot of people that know about what's going on, I still think it's a minority in the church that's aware. So there's 14,000 people that have signed the petition. Well, there's 16 million members. So that's still a dinky portion. Uh, with all the news coverage that has happened in Salt Lake City in December and January, I've still talked to people that said, well, I've never heard of this before. Um, so it may not have been, it might not have been raised to the level that the apostles are even considering this. But I think the biggest um, uh, hamper to change <clears throat> is we have an element to our culture that is we, that things are supposed to only work top down. Now that's not the way it's worked historically, but um, we kind of look at that, that we only take orders from above. We don't state 
um, strongly and firmly that this needs to change. That is not we've kind of been uh, that that's been developed in our culture. So I think that's a problem, too, that we look to Salt Lake for all the decisions and we don't question anything that has come from Salt Lake City. Yeah, it feels like that was a a consequence of correlation, right? Like we used to have a little bit of diversity. For instance, we we talk about how it's kind of expected of all of us that as men, when we go to church on Sunday, we wear a white shirt. And yet you go back and look at the general conferences on YouTube from the 1970s, and you see more color than you do um, in in the women, for instance, of the church uh, today. Like these men are wearing yellow and blue and red and green, and they have all these colored shirts on. And yet correlation comes along, and correlation essentially says we're going to do the same thing uniformly through the whole church. And and we've taught our members that you know that correlation is to protect all of us, and that correlation comes from the top down. And I think it's impacted us on on this particular uh, dynamic where any new idea is a bad idea. In fact, you had Elder Oaks recently make the comment that um, if you receive a revelation and that revelation is different than what the leaders of the church are teaching, then you can know that revelation comes from the wrong source. And I think that's a really dangerous teaching because I think all of us have a right to revelation. And that revelation will sometimes tell us to do something different under a unique circumstance than what it tells the church to do generally. And yet, by a, by a quote like that by Elder Oaks, we've scared our members into any time we think anything different than these men have taught, then we're getting our information from the adversary. And, and that essentially will squash any new idea that comes across. Well, <clears throat> I think we also get into our culture things that are not said by Elder Oaks or not said by the apostles. They're said by somebody else and somehow they spread. Like a few years ago, I started wearing a black shirt to church because there was a man in the ward that came once in a while. He always wore a black shirt. I decided I have, I want to, uh, to start building a relationship with him. And so I went and bought a white black shirt. I'd never worn one before. And I wore it every Sunday just to make sure that if he showed up, we we're going to have something in common. And it worked. We became great friends. Uh, but at some point in time, I heard something about somebody asked me why I'm wearing a black shirt rather than white. And I explained why. And, and then he said, you know, we're supposed to wear white. Well, I didn't know that. I, I don't know how I missed out on that whole thing. We're not supposed to wear white because I grew up as a kid. You wore different color shirts. Um, but I went, so I went home after he said that and I started looking for white shirts and sure enough, you can find a couple of places where not apostles, somebody else, they didn't say wear white shirts. They said something about white shirts are good to wear because they symbolize purity or something like that. I can't remember exactly what they said, but there it is a general conference talk, not an apostle. And suddenly, and him not saying don't, um, you should only wear white shirts. Suddenly that became uh, spread throughout our culture and became a cultural thing. You always wear white shirts. Um, so like the explicit questions, that may be a similar thing. I don't know where that came from. We can point to a couple places where it was said to ask about masturbation and ask 
not just if you have masturbated, ask, when's the last time? Um, but you don't find a single apostle that ever said that in general conference to ask specific questions. Um, so, but somehow it's gotten into half our, by the way, lots of bishops don't ask these questions. Um, I was at a meeting this weekend, there were 40 people there and I asked, how many of you were asking appropriate questions when, you, when you're kids? Half of the room raised their hands. That meant the other half weren't, that, that didn't, weren't asked those questions. So, um, anyway. I don't even know where that came from. No, I appreciate that because I think there are lots of good leaders out there. And I think, I think again, maybe half, maybe more than half of these leaders are responsible. They get like where healthy boundaries should be and, and they tend to kind of stray away from ever going off script. Like let's, let's ask these questions, let that, let these kids answer them and let's move on and not try to delve into these kids, personal lives in that way. Um, so so here you are, you've, you've suggested to the church that there's some unhealthiness here. You've posted stories from people sharing their personal experiences of the things that they've been asked and the trauma that that has caused. You're talking openly about boundaries and how they're distorted in, the, in this interview process. You've put out a petition um, asking for people to support the encouragement of the church to change on this issue. And the church has been not only resistant to that change, not only resistant to even validating that there's some unhealthiness here. Um, instead, they've come back and uh, anchored themselves in even deeper saying like, no, we're doing this better than anyone. And the church, either on a local or a higher up level, and I'd love to get your conversation on this, have brought you in to have conversations with your leaders. Tell us a little bit about what initiated the process of the, the local leadership, bishop and stake president, sitting down with you and having a conversation with you about your um, activism on this issue. So I've been reaching out to the bishop and the stake president, especially the stake president, for a long time. Uh, and I wasn't hearing anything at all back. Uh, the bishop uh, last November did respond. Uh, I was saying, I would like to find out what's happening in our own ward and our own stake, in our ward and stake. Um, I did not hear back from the stake president, uh, but I did on that email hear back from the, the bishop. And he, um, <clears throat> so we sat down and talked about what his policy was in the ward. So I had been pushing for months, let's sit down and talk about this. Um, and I have written, you know, I put all the letters on my blog, not all the letters, most of the letters I've sent out to the bishop and stake president. But I wanted to meet with them to state my concerns personally, as opposed to just these emails, because I'm getting no response to the emails. So I had wanted to sit down and, and talk with them. And this has been going on for months. Um, but finally... Um, the state president um, uh, was agreeable to setting that appointment, uh, and so we we uh, met met for about three hours. The bishop, the state president, and I to talk about uh, my concerns, and then they talked about their concerns. And, and so you sit down, you have this conversation. At some point, your leadership. 
begins to see you as crossing a line. And, and I'm curious, like that conversation, maybe if you could just tell us, I know you've written about it, but tell us a little bit about why your leaders saw you as crossing a line and where, if they, if they gave any indication of kind of where that direction was coming from. Well, in that meeting, I started out by presenting a printed version of the stories that have been collected on my website, which now there's 340 or so. And these, these, what we've done to our kids in these interviews really is horrid. Uh, such bad things have happened. We, we've really harmed our children in egregious ways. Uh, so I wanted to present that and then talk about what we're doing and what, what changes that we ought to make. Um, well, right off the bat, um, the state president said, we don't need to make any changes. You're way behind the time, Sam. Uh, and so that was the stories were immediately put aside that they really had no um, bearing on the issues at hand. But we did talk about my concerns for about two and a half hours, which, hey, I applaud him for that. <clears throat> um, the next, um, but, but then it was the state president had his agenda, and it was basically to call me out as an apostate. He asked me if I was an apostate, and I responded, well, no, I'm not an apostate. And he said, well, yes, you are an apostate, <laughs> and pulled out the um, definition of apostate apostasy in the handbook, which is if you openly speak out against the apostles or against the church, uh, against the church and against its leaders, you're an apostasy. And my response was, I'm not speaking out against the church. I'm not speaking against its leaders. I'm speaking against one policy one-on-one -on -one behind closed doors and interviews where we talk about sex. That's, that's the policy. that, And <clears throat> so it went back and forth a few times where he would tell me that I'm an apostate because of this and read it, and then I'd respond back, no, I'm not, because I'm responding to one policy. We never came to terms on that. Um, <clears throat> it was, he insisted I was an apostate. Uh, and... Uh, he said that he had to protect the good name of the church. So we talked about that for a bit, that the good name of the church, that is not my major concern. Jesus Christ was not concerned about the good name of the church when he was on the earth. He was constantly criticizing the leaders of the church. Uh, he never, ever said, here's our primary concern. We need to protect the good name of the church. No, he was out for people. He was, um, he, his gospel was going after the one, leaving the 99, being with the one. His gospel was the uh, good Samaritan. The priest stayed on the other side of the road, and that crummy Samaritan, he's the one that crossed the road and ministered to the, to the beaten and bruised guy that's, uh, that was over, over there. And uh, ministering to the least of these, the, the hungry, the naked, the, and so on. That that's what Christ was concerned about. He never ever was concerned about the um, uh, the oh, what's it called the the good, the good name of the church. So we talked about that, but then I also <clears throat> said that the really we are um, our, the good name of the church is not protected when we're doing bad things to our children. Uh, if we want to protect the good name of the church, we really ought to be doing good things to our children. Anyway, we so it was that I need, and he told me that I needed to stop speaking out in public about this. 
So he called an apostate. They said they needed. He said he needs to protect the good name of the church, and I need to stop um, speaking out in public about this. Yeah, it seems like any time that valid criticism is shared, there, the system to address that seems broken. And and you hit on a couple of these. One is that the church has made it clear that you're not to contact higher up leaders directly. So you're dependent on notifying your bishop or your stake president of a problem. And if that bishop or stake president feels it's a problem, first off, they most likely won't. They're, they're going to feel a sense of loyalty to the way the church does things. And this, there's this need to always make sure that leaders above you feel like you're doing a good job. And so you're always trying to please those above you. And so this, this pressure of being loyal to the leaders that called you oftentimes compels this leadership to not take a serious concern if it means the church is doing something wrong and pass it up, which is exactly what happened in your situation for quite a while, right? These guys were really resistant to sitting down with you and having a conversation about this issue. Um, so, but if that leader, if that leader says, yeah, I think this is a problem too. Now they've got to contact an area authority. He runs into the same paradigm. Maybe he passes it up. Maybe he doesn't. But if it involves acknowledging that the church is doing something wrong as a whole, the pressure is there to not carry that concern further ahead. That area authority has to contact a full-time authority. That full-time authority has to contact a member of the twelve. Member of the 12 has to talk to the First Presidency. Somewhere along that chain, all you need is one person to say like, yeah, I'm not going to be the guy who does this. I'm not going to be the guy who carries this concern further and suggests that the church is doing something wrong. And it stops right there. And yet you can't contact those top leaders directly. You've been told not to. So all you're left with then is to publicly make this an issue. And then once you do that... You're considered apostate, and you're told to cease and desist. In other words, this institution doesn't have a single healthy way in which to get a serious concern addressed. Now, the second thing you pointed out, um, Sam, is that there's this realization in the church, like any time you bring into question that the church is doing something wrong, you're considered an apostate. And I want to kind of expound on this a moment. I was talking before we started the interview about this. The church works so hard to shield their authority and to protect it that in the effort to protect it, they often obfuscate, deflect, dismiss, accuse, harm, and betray others who are sharing a critical, constructive criticism or who are affected by the unhealthy practices of the institution. And in the end, the one thing that matters most to these guys in protecting their authority is the thing that they have a hand in deconstructing by going through these mechanisms. In other words, if they wanted to maintain authority, or at least as much of it as possible, you would think there'd be a willingness to hear valid criticisms, to have a system to address them, to openly validate them as appropriate, and find some way to fix the unhealthiness that's present. But these guys, and I don't know what it is, but these guys, are to, to them, it's so important that they maintain authority and are seen as having authority, that there's no way. Like I, I can't even name times they've ever publicly taken a constructive criticism and said, you know what, that's a valid criticism. We're going to address that. I think the closest we've come 
is Elder McConkie doing a pseudo-apology after the 1978 lifting of the priesthood ban, and perhaps Elder Uchtdorf, who a few general conferences ago, probably six or seven years ago now at this point, said uh, at times leaders have made mistakes, some of those mistakes violate uh, policies and doctrines, but without ever getting very specific at all. Um, I, I know I just rambled a bunch, but I think it was important to lay out that this institution doesn't have a healthy mechanism for addressing serious and valid concerns, and that this institution shields itself from ever having to validate that somebody's constructive criticism is true and needs addressed. Yeah, yeah. I, I, so going forward, what do we do? Like, if the church is resistant to acknowledging that there's some unhealthiness here, the end, and anybody who raises the concern is going to be pointed out as an apostate, then what can we do to encourage the church to make a change? Well, um, I've got an answer to how I'm encouraging the church to make a change, uh, how anybody else can make encourage the church to make a change. I, I'm not sure the answer to that. Uh, my answer could very well lead to me being kicked out of the church, which, you know, you, you were talking about maintaining authority. Unfortunately, what they're doing is losing authority. So they kick me out of the church. Well, they have no authority over me. People that leave the church, well, the church has no authority. Uh, I don't know what the activity rates are in the church, but it's estimated it's about a third of the members are active. Well, that means two-thirds, they've already lost whatever authority and influence they had. This matter of interviews, um, so many, most of the children that had damage of in, damaging interviews, inappropriate interviews, uh, most of those children, at least the ones that share stories with me, they're gone. They don't want to have anything to do with the church. I've had many parents say that that was their deal breaker because they didn't want their kids to be um, exposed to whatever is going to happen on behind closed doors. So when you talk about authority, um, if you want people to not be leaving the church over something that's totally inappropriate, uh, well, you're losing authority. Um, by continuing the practice that we have today. But your question is, how do we, how do we raise the, how do we make changes? So this is my approach at this point in time. I've tried the, to work within the traditional lines of authority, which I don't even know why we have those. That you're supposed to work, do this. If, you, if I look at the example of Jesus Christ, he certainly wasn't following some prescribed method that the Pharisees had set up. Um, he was speaking out to defend those that were defenseless, defend those that uh, were poor and needy uh, against the leaders of the church. But anyway, uh, since I was not successful in getting any response there, that's why I finally decided to take it public for two reasons. Number one, for members of the church to become aware of what is going on. I didn't know what was going on until a year ago. Um, many members of the church keep say, telling me, oh, this isn't happening. Uh, well, it is happening. And then you've got a bunch of other members of the church to say, yes, of course it's happening. It's to raise awareness that, so, so taking it public raises awareness to where we can make the changes internally, where um, 
members realize, you know what, I've got a choice here. I don't have to just let my child go behind closed doors all by all alone and be asked sexual questions. I don't have to allow that. So it raises an awareness where and that really would be the ideal way, way where members go to their bishops, tell them that um, here's the boundaries that I've set for my child. Here's the boundaries our family has set for our children. There are actually many members that I'm finding that there are people that have done that before this movement even started. Um, they did that 10 years ago or five years ago because they already recognized the dangers. <clears throat> and they've been re received in various different ways, depending on the bishop roulette situation. <laughs> Some have been told your child will not. We don't do worthiness interviews um, with parents. It would have to your child. We have to interview alone and we have to ask about sexual things or your child will not um, progress to the next level of young women's or to the in the priesthood, or they won't be able to go to the temple. That, and that is happening today. There are members that are going to, I talked to another one this weekend that said they'd gone to their bishop and their bishop had said that your child won't advance. Well, in that case, the family's just gonna leave the church if their child is going to be shunned because the there won't be any behind that the parents have set boundaries. But if we could start it in the church where we go to our own bishops, if every bishop had 10 families, every bishop had three or four families in their ward that went to them and talked about this, we would see changes start to happen. So, but then the, then you have the other side of it to where pub, to raise public awareness. Um, so, you know, we are putting bishops in a horrid situation, an extremely uh, vulnerable situation to being accused of things from lawsuits uh, in today's world. Now, so, so now that this is out there, all the negative consequences that have happened, all the bad things that have happened to our children because we sent them behind closed doors, that is going to make it more likely that some disgruntled parent, some disgruntled teenager is going to take a recording of what the bishop is talking about and release that. Um, so we have dangers to our parents or to, to our to our leadership out there. Dangers to the what bishop wants his co-workers to know. You know, bishop, when you tell somebody you're a bishop, that's a that carries some respect with it. But if now the public associates with a bishop, oh, that's the guy that takes 12-year-olds behind closed door and asks them if they masturbate. Um, that is a horrible reputation to have. Um, that needs to be raised to an awareness for our bishops uh, to know that. So anyway, those are some things that that's finally where, where I've gone to, to make it to, to bring it public um, so that there's more awareness about this. Yeah, yeah. You raised the point, and we've talked about it a little bit, that, again, the authority is so important to these guys, and, and the unhealthy mechanisms they implement to shield that authority from criticism, uh, I think actually contributes to the dismantling of the very authority they're trying to protect. Um, I, I want to talk for a moment, uh, House Bill 330, which you mentioned that sooner or later, somebody's going to record a bishop asking these questions, and when that goes public, it's going to be disastrous to the church and its reputation. 
uh, especially when four or five or six of these come out, and I think it's just a matter of time, uh, but the church seems like it made an effort to try and keep that from happening uh, just last uh, week. And again, I have a, a good inside source that it was the church that initiated this legislation, but didn't want to be the face of it. So they went to the Salt Lake Chamber, asked them to put it forward. There were members of the chamber who, when they found out afterward that that's what happened, they were furious. Um, but the chamber then suggests this legislation. Um, a uh, politician by the name of Snow down here in southern Utah uh, was the face of it. And then uh, another gentleman, I think the last name was Wheeler, uh, seconded it. And within 24 hours, the uproar here in Utah was so significant that these guys just did away with it. Like, it was gone. And they've tabled it. And I I think the church would still like to see this pass. And I think it's going to be approached again sometime here in the near future. But at least for now, with all the noise about it, uh, it's been tabled. Your thoughts was, my personal gut is that this was in response to you, Sam, but your thoughts on whether House Bill 330 uh, was in response to your initiative? Well, I uh, got a call about that. I've gotten a call from a – I've gotten – okay. So people have said just what you said right there, that part of the reason the church wanted to do this is because of what I'm doing is calling attention to bad things going on behind closed doors and the danger of those things. Um, and I've been asked for a statement on that. But you know what, Bill? I am not familiar with – um, politics in most anywhere, especially in Utah. So I don't know what what's behind. Uh, all I have is to read the very same articles everybody else did. So I read the uh, chron- the uh, Tribune article where um, somebody prominent in the state legislature said that he had a source that didn't want to be named that said the church was upset about recordings of leadership and they wanted to um, – keep that from happening in Utah. And that, so that's as much information that I know if it was because of what I'm doing. Well, I am super glad that there was an outcry in Utah that was heard that they don't want to, they want to protect the children, not protect the leaders from what they're doing to children behind closed doors. Right. Um, there are a lot of voices in, I want to say progressive Christianity, but but just in kind of this, this develop, developing society that recognize that institutions will almost always place their focus on self-preservation. And I find it so odd that a religious institution, right? We, we, we claim this institution as the true and living church of Jesus Christ, and in my mind, just me speaking personally, when I when I look at how Jesus interacted, and you pointed this out, that Jesus, when having to make a choice between those on the margins and the institution, the true and living church of his day, Christ always sided with those on the margins and, and gave the tension back to uh, his church. And it surprises me that our, our church, which we claim and believe to be the true and living church of Jesus Christ, rather than being like transparent and forthright about this unhealthiness, instead is choosing mechanisms like this legislation to shield itself. Now, whether it's because of House Bill 330 or whether it's because of 
recorded excommunication courts for people like Jeremy Runnels or others, it's I sense that the church doesn't want the conversations that happen behind closed doors to be public. And I know it's giving some reasons for those, but those reasons don't make a lot of sense because those recordings aren't coming out. They use the reason of confidential ecclesiastical conversations. Now, if it's a healthy, confidential ecclesiastical conversation, I don't know of one of those that's being recorded and released. Like, I don't see that as an issue. The only time it's an issue is if something is said that crosses a healthy boundary and is is causing harm or trauma and is and is inappropriate. And those are the recordings that are going to get released. And so it seems like the church is wanting to kind of shield itself again from some real honest, valid, true, healthy criticism. And, and to me, that's deeply disturbing because I expect more out of my church. I expect more out of this faith that claims to be true and living. Um, I do want to ask you, Sam, you talked about your interactions with your bishop and your stake president. Did you get any indication from them that they were having conversations with people above them and that their um, approach with you was encouraged by those leaders above them? Uh, No, and I didn't ask that question. The only thing I mentioned was, um, so I was sending all these letters and getting no response whatsoever. Uh, I sent a couple, maybe three letters out to every leader in the whole stake, every bishopric, every high counselor, um, all the members of the stake presidency. I think it was like 45 uh, emails I sent out about these issues. I didn't get a response from anybody. I would have thought I would have gotten at least a response from the stake president that, Sam, it, I'd appreciate it if you didn't copy everybody on these letters. Um, but it was I received nothing. And certainly nothing from all the, the, the stuff I was sending the state president. But um, somebody pulled me aside at church that's very well connected in the stake. And he said, Sam, uh, I just want you to know that the state president has received instructions from those above him to ignore you. That's why you're not hearing anything back. Well, I brought that up in our meeting. And the state president said that, no, nobody's told me to ignore you. Uh, So that's the only conversation I had. I did not ask if anybody told him to call me an apostate. If that's true, again, recognizing that it's inappropriate to contact higher leaders directly, as they've stated as much in the church handbook of instruction, for you to raise a concern with a stake president and for the leaders above him who've already said you can't contact us to tell that stake president to ignore you, that that just seems like the, I don't know, that doesn't feel like a healthy way that a true and living church that that speaks for Jesus Christ would handle it. And again, I know I'm not trying to put words in your mouth. Everybody who's listening can understand that whatever I've said is what I'm speaking for myself and speaking personally. But it certainly is frustrating to me to hear and discuss and to read about the mechanisms in the church that keep any valid constructive criticism from ever being addressed um, head on. Um, I do want to at least finish up kind of giving you a chance to talk about where people can find out more about this issue and get involved. And if they want to put their name on the petition, they can do that. Would you please just tell the listeners uh, where they can find more information about the things that we've um, talked about today? 
Okay, so there's a website uh, called protectldschildren.org. When you go there, there's a link to the petition, and there are links to uh, videos. So we're we're also collecting stories. I've had over 2,000 people send me stories um, of bad interviews and bad consequences and uh, that started last March, um, but we started a website a little over a month ago to collect stories because people would ask me, Sam, this isn't happening. Where Can you show me where it's happening? And I didn't have any good central place to, to send a news reporter um, or any other member of the church that wanted to see what was going on. So we started a website about a month, a little over a month ago, and people are starting to, to submit their stories there. So you can submit your story if you had a, an interview that was inappropriate and, and damaged you. Um, you can record it there. You can also read 340 stories there. Uh, and we videoize some of those stories. And um, so you can see the stories there. There's also a link to a set boundaries. Uh, if you want to... Um, I had people ask, oh, so, so how do we approach our bishop? What, what would we tell our bishop? And so there's a letter there that uh, you can give to your bishop or you can use as a, a template to change it to however you think it would be uh, work best for you that you can give to your bishop. These are the boundaries we're setting uh, for our family. Uh, but anyway, so protectldschildren.org would be the place to go there. Perfect. ProtectLDSChildren.org. And uh, at this point, Sam, because I know it's a hard thing to do, like you almost have to, if if somebody wanted to record these interviews, number one, I would suggest that people make sure that their state is a one-party state so you're not doing something illegal. Um, But if you, and and again, in Utah, you might recognize that at some point that may change if, if things don't go kind of how they've gone the last few days. Um, but if somebody was – obviously, you have to walk in this interview and go, look, I'm, I'm worried that there's a risk that something might happen, so I'm just going to take the precautionary measure of recording it. I, I just, I'm curious if anybody sent you audio recordings yet of these interviews. It, are, do you know offhand if people are out there recording these at this point? I have no idea, and I'm not counseling anybody to, to record. Um, I certainly am not ca- um, recommending that children um, record. The, 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 what the children, that's the parents' responsibility. They, they should make the decision or work through that situation. So I'm not encouraging anybody to record. It's kind of interesting. Um, in the meeting I had with the state president, I sh- I've been told that three levels of church administration um, to keep the, that conversation private. And after the conversation, I'm looking at why did I make that commitment? Because we're not talking about private things. We're talking about policy here. And after the third time, I made the decision I am no longer going to make a commitment to, to keep anything private that's not private. And policy, especially when we're talking about what we're doing to our kids, I'm not keeping that private. So um, at the outset of the meeting with the state president, I told him that I um, wanted to make sure that when I talked about this or wrote about it, that I got it as accurate as possible. And so would you mind if I recorded it? <laughs> well, he, well, actually, I started off by asking if he was recording the meeting. 
And he said no. So then I went through this that I'd like to record it to make sure that whatever you tell me, I don't get that wrong. Uh, he asked me not to record it. So, um, but I'm no longer going to keep things private and I prefer to record every conversation, but I don't want to do it clandestinely. Many people recommend you do it clandestinely. I know Jeremy Runnels did and that's perfectly fine. Um, but, um, at this point I'm not planning on that. Uh, but I would like to so that I don't get anything wrong out of our meeting. But yeah, with this sentiment that's out, you know, the church, unfortunately, we create a lot of enemies, Bill, um, by the way we treat people. And so there are people that would like to have interviews um, recorded. When is that 16-year-old girl that was so grossed out and angry at what was asked her, when is she going to go in and, and record um, the next interview where the bishop asked super inappropriate questions. So it could be a parent, it could be a child. Um, the bishops are really in not a good place um, for this. Yeah, I, I as you talk about this level of secrecy, I mean, when the church had the Swedish rescue and they went out and talked to the, the group that was in the geography of Hans Matson, when they had this meeting, they asked everybody to keep the meeting secret. When when John DeLynn or Jeremy Runnels or somebody else is excommunicated now, the stake president has these, you know, the church is telling these uh, local leaders to get the participant to agree not to record the audio. It just, again, feels like one of these mechanisms of secrecy and shielding ourselves from accountability. And I just think it's dangerous. And I think it's only a matter of time before some audio does come out. And when it does, I, I think it's I think it's going to be very, um, in a negative way, influential on on public opinion of of the church and and how it behaves. I, I think the church would like to move through this and make a change. I bet they do, but I, but I but the church usually operates in a way that they wait for everything to quiet down so the change sounds like it came from inside rather than outside. And I just don't I don't think in an information age, an internet age. That strategy works anymore, and I, I worry about the church's reputation and what's going to happen uh, if it doesn't adjust to this unhealthiness that's here. So for all those who are listening, just to finish up, protectldschildren.org. Uh, and again, uh, Sam Young, I just want to say thank you for being on. This is an issue that I didn't think was important until I started to hear you speak about it and started to see the conversations going on. And then recognize, like, this may be one of the most important issues in all of Mormonism as we try to protect our kids. And I just want to say thank you for being the face um, of, of this encouragement to address this unhealthiness. Bill, can I mention one more thing? Please. So um, we now have over 14,000 signatures on the petition. We started out where my goal was to get 10,000. And everybody told me at the beginning of that, you're not going to get 10,000 signatures on that. Well, by golly, we did. And it's continued to move forward. But that our next major thing that we're planning on is a march for our children to get these changes so that we raise it to as high a level as possible. So on March 30th, we're going to have a march for the children in Salt Lake City. Our goal is to have 1,000 people show up for that march, where we will be marching from City Hall to uh, church headquarters, uh, to the church office building, where we will present two things. One is the petition with 
how many of thousands of signatures we have, and two, to present what I'm calling the sacred stories of our sacred children, the children whose childhoods we have ruined. Um, we want to present that um, to the church also. And again, this is this is really a historic thing, Bill. I don't know when this has ever happened. I know that Kate Kelly did something, but this is historic because the church is going to change. There's no way they will continue doing this. Uh, if they continue to do this, the world is going is now going to be aware of it, and there's no way that a, that somebody that a parent in the right mind is going to think I'm going to join that church that takes children behind closed doors all alone with a grown man and asks my child if she masturbates and all the other horrid questions that are being asked or might be asked by that bishop. So um, I would encourage your listeners, come join us. This is not against the church. This is for the church. This is going to protect, number one, protect our children. That is the number one thing is protect the children today. But number two, it protects the good name of the church. Number three, it protects the good bishops that are out there. So come join us for the March uh, historic event, March 30th. And uh, if you go to the Facebook page um, for Protect LDS Children, you'll find all the information to sign up there. Awesome. I I know the Savior spoke about children in a way that I can only label as reverenced when he said, suffer the little children to come unto me, for such is the kingdom of God. And, and we understand how serious Jesus took any, the, the consequences of anyone who would harm a little child. And, and I would simply join with you, Sam, in, in asking people to consider getting involved. Because if, if an institution that claims to love children and to protect them isn't going to be vulnerable to its unhealthiness that hurts these very children. Like, I, I don't know what else to do. Like, we have to be uh, a voice to suggest that something's not healthy here and to encourage our church to to adjust to that. And, and I just want to say what you're doing is important. And to anyone who values these little ones, uh, I would just consider at least reading about this issue, understanding this issue. And if you feel... Um, compelled at that point to get involved. Sam Young, thank you so much you, uh, for being on the podcast today. Yeah, it just means a lot to me. And I, I think the world of what you're doing and I think the world of the courage you've got to say, come what may, I'm going to stand here on this ground because it's the right ground to stand on. Well, thank you, my friend. I appreciate what you're doing. And thanks for giving me the opportunity to talk about this. All right. Thank you so much. You bet. Let's go.